Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I am your host Scott Challoner today and we're going to be joined a little later on in the show by incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman and former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. First and foremost, however, I'm delighted to be joined on the programme by Vincent Page from Antiques on Hi. Um, Vincent, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us on the programme today. Yes, good morning, Scott. Thank you very much indeed. Um, it's a pleasure to be discussing the various issues with you. I uh, look forward to seeing what we can uh, get, get going together. Absolutely. And um, the reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. And considering that today's business leaders are going through, I think you'll agree, one of the greatest challenges of our time in the shape of the COVID-19 crisis, I feel it would be a good starting point to just ask you to what extent it's affected you and your operations and within the antiques industry. Yes, well, we were very aware of it. I was very aware of the situation back in February and March. And we have various different people that work in both stores, which is in Oxford High Street and in Sidmouth in Devon. And we actually shut both shops on Tuesday, the 17th of March, at about 2 o'clock, due to concerns that had been raised by the people that were generally working in the shop. And the fact that, from my perspective, it was very obvious that there was going to be a lockdown. So I didn't see the point in putting anybody else at risk for the sake of what was a few days' takings, um, because I believe it was six days later uh, the government issued a a general lockdown on the country. Um, And we were shut up until the 15th of June uh, when we opened both shops again, obviously under very COVID-secure restrictions and guidelines. Mm. And can you see there being sort of a long-term lockdown hangover on the antiques industry so you can see yourself perhaps operating under safety procedures for quite some time yet? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, we've we've put um, very stringent measures in place. Uh, We have hand sanitizer inside the front door and every single person that comes in is asked to use it. If they don't or they refuse in any way, shape or form, they are asked to leave. We also take their temperature. We have thermodetect guns as well. So we take people's temperature, which is non-contact. Inevitably, you get some people who are just a little bit rebellious and decide that they don't want to have their temperature taken. So we just ask them to leave. Um, So we're kind of looking at the fact that everybody that comes into the shop, A, hasn't got a temperature, and B, has sanitized their hands, which makes it relatively safe for them to touch uh, and handle some of the various pieces we've got in the shop. Uh, We limit the numbers. Both shops have got a bollard, which is put by the front door to stop anybody coming in once we reach a certain level. Um, The Oxford shop is an awful lot bigger. So if people tend to move towards the back of the shop as they come in, you can allow a degree more people in. Um, But we're, we're very, very conscious of making sure that we we continue with the with this sort of procedure, and uh, I can see it going on for a long time. I can certainly see it going going on, sort of, you know, probably to the middle of next year, unless, of course, a vaccine becomes available mm-hmm. that cures the situation. 
And it is interesting that you mentioned that there are some rebels when it comes to the existing restrictions, because there are a couple of dominant headlines in the news this week. One, of course, being Brexit related around government plans to override parts of the EU withdrawal agreement agreed last year. But also there's the new rule of six that's going to be coming into force from Monday morning as well. And that's centred around the fact that essentially people are maybe not sticking by certain guidelines when it comes to social gatherings in particular. So it's going to take a little bit of understanding from people and a little bit of willingness to comply to essentially make sure that we're not going to be backtracking in all of this, isn't there? So um, leadership is one important element of making that happen from the government's point of view. And for those critics who are saying that maybe, oh, there are some inconsistencies in logic here and there, I think in some senses they've just got to bite the bullet a bit, haven't they? Absolutely. I mean, the thing is, what, what a lot of people tend to forget is the fact that this virus uh, came upon us back in the beginning of the year. And the government, granted, has more information about the structure of the virus and how it works, etc., than the general public. But the public, I think, have been very quick to criticise the government at every stage. And People are very quick to pass judgment. Oh, they handled this wrong. They handled that wrong. They should have done this. They should have done that. But at the end of the day, we're all dealing with something that we've never had to deal with before. So to a degree, I think everybody's flying by the seat of their pants on what to do. And when guidelines are issued saying, these do this, follow them. It's, it's no great hardship. You know, when you look back into Edwardian times, you know, when there was the, the, the um, I think it was the Spanish flu, which was back in 1914. Uh, people were wearing masks then. And there was a second spike of this flu, which actually killed more people mm. than the first, the initial um, infection. Uh, and I, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if there's another lockdown in this country uh, with the way things are going. Um, it's, it's easy to see how, how some people when you wander around a specific town, seem to have just forgotten that this virus is still very, very much alive and still very dangerous. Some people seem to just think, oh, well, the government said we can go out now, so let's all go out. And they just forget about it the minute they walk out the door. Uh, we, we get countless people who walk into both shops who have got their mask, and a lot of them forget to put it on. Oh, you have to remind them, could you put your mask on, please? Uh, and... Those that say, I don't want to wear one, well then, please don't come into the shop. Thank you very much. It's certainly going to be a very interesting uh, few months because we are now entering that latter stage of the year where we're in the run-up to the colder months. So let's just keep our fingers crossed that the trajectory isn't going to be too upward in terms of the uh, the cases uh, from this point onward. Um, and just going back to what we were discussing uh, just now as well, I think we've really seen the value of hindsight during this period. There are so many people, of course, um, essentially saying that, oh, well, business maybe could have done this better, the government could have done this differently, etc., etc., during this time. But when you are in a leadership position and you're managing something as unprecedented as this, it really hits home that leadership is a process of constantly learning, isn't it? You can't become more effective within your leadership capacity without making mistakes, accepting when those mistakes are made and then embracing that as a learning curve, can you? Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, at the moment, everybody, things are changing on a daily basis. And if you're running a business, if you're leading anything, you have to be able to act quickly. You have to be able to take on board the information that is becoming available and do something about it, implement changes as quickly as possible. 
to ensure a everybody's safety and you know the maximum revenue for your business given the circumstances you're in. Uh, I think an awful lot of people uh, have tended to um, ignore, to a degree, the uh, the situation uh, with the virus. Uh, I know in our Sidmouth shop, we, as I said to you, we take temperatures when people come in the shop, uh, and most people will say to us, "Oh, it's the first time we we've been here all day, and we've walked in all these different shops. It's the first time anybody's taken our temperature," which is an indication to me that maybe other people aren't so conscious of trying to ensure the safety of not only the public, but the people that actually work in the shop as well. Mm. And just thinking about the uh, the last few months from your point of view and in your leadership role, uh, Vincent, when we're on the topic of learning, is there anything that you have learned yourself in your role as you've had to adapt to this new reality? Uh, well, largely, we, we followed the guidelines that the government have issued uh, in, in regards to retail. Uh, we've modified them ourselves to a degree because I don't think their guidelines include taking people's temperatures. So I thought it was just belt and braces to have these temperature guns. Uh, But we've we've changed the way we operate in the shops. Uh, We've uh, implemented all sorts of little changes. Um, I mean, naturally, unfortunately, the antiques industry is, is one where most people consider that cash is a viable option. And we take cash, but we, we, we've got um, a bronze, I don't know whether people uh, realize it's not bronze, but a copper tray. Now, copper will kill that virus in a matter of probably an hour. So if the virus was to get onto a copper plate, it would be that the virus is dead within an hour. So we, if anybody pays by cash, we will put the cash into a, a copper tray and we spray it with an anti-back spray. Granted, the money's wet. It then goes into the till. It might be wet, but so what? I'd rather be have damp hands than be facing um, hospital with uh, with this virus. Uh, so yes, we've had to make a lot of changes. We've had to adapt uh, very quickly to the way we need to do things to keep people safe. Uh, a lot of the people that work in, in retail can be of a more mature age. Certain um, DIY stores actively take on more mature people. Mm. Uh, so at this precise moment, they've got to be extremely conscious of making sure those people are safe. Mm. People certainly do have to be the uh, the priority in all of this. Um, there have been many people that we've had on the show and they've always mentioned the fact that staff have always been the uh, the priority. And closely linked to that is not just, of course, the physical well-being of those staff members, but also their mental health as well, because the social isolation elements of the lockdown period has certainly thrust the importance of that topic back into the, uh, the limelight of the national discussion. Um, in your case, Vincent, just how important do you see mental health as being within leadership, both in terms of safeguarding that of those around you, but also your own as well? Uh, yeah, that's a good one. Um, in terms of, sort of like the general mental health and welfare of people that work in, in, you know, in the, uh, the retail industry, I mean, they're the ones that are facing the public on a day-to-day basis. Uh, and you could, you could describe them as being they are the ones at, at most risk. Um, I think a lot of the problem is the fact that People don't like to discuss mental health. It's always had a bit of a cloud or a shadow over it. So if you if you believe that somebody that works in one of your stores is suffering in any way, shape or form, I think you've just got to take the ball by the horns, take them to one side and quietly discuss it with them and see if they're okay. Granted, you might offend some people 
but I'd rather offend somebody than let somebody slip through the net who's suffering in a major way that you just don't realise or you haven't picked up on because you've decided to ignore asking the question. And quite often during this time, people who have been sort of drawn in by the uncertainty and the worry of this have looked to their business leaders for that little bit of inspiration and direction as and when they've needed it. But when you are the leader as such, and there's nobody really above you to refer to, and you're having to shoulder that pressure, when you need a little bit of sort of inspiration for yourself during a time like this, where is it that you tend to look for it? Uh, That's a good one as well. Um, In terms of inspiration, I... (sighs) I found this, I've always been able to adapt. I think adaptability is key. Mm. You know, when, when this situation occurred back in February, March, I mean, I was referring to it as being, it was a, it was a bit like being in a film. As, as things progressed on a daily basis, things were rapidly changing. And then the country went into lockdown and it was, uh, you know, speaking to people that work in the shops, people that, you know, you know, uh, it, you're talking to people and, and it almost the whole situation that you're living in appears to be a little bit like a film script. It's almost like you're living in a film. And I think the reality set in as to what was what had occurred and what was going to occur for some considerable time. Um, and I think you need to just be prepared and able to adapt very quickly to the circumstances you're in. Um, we've followed the, the government guidelines. Uh, I mean, throughout the, the lockdown, the, uh, I was watching the um, updates that were on the television every single day, checking the news. You know, uh, I don't think I needed inspiration. It was just a case of, you know, doing what's right at the right time, you know, doing what's necessary, making sure everybody's safe um, and going the extra mile if you have to. I was a little bit concerned uh, at some point because there we've got quite a few people who work in our store in Oxford and a few of them were asking questions and I was thinking well I don't actually know the answer to that one um, let me find out and I was uh, speaking to um, various people at the Leaders Council and getting answers very very quickly which enabled me to go back to the people that had asked me the questions and reassure them with you know solid answers. And that's certainly um, an encouraging um, approach to take, of course, um, realising that one isn't alone in dealing with this. And there are so many people that one can go to for advice because we're not lone wolves even in leadership roles, are we? We are um, people who can essentially approach others, learn from them, see what they're doing and sort of use those ideas to kind of almost develop our own uh, models and approaches. Absolutely. I think I think business has changed um, remarkably over the last 30 or 40 years where um, business leaders were, I suppose, a little bit considered to be sat in their ivory tower, um, as it were. And, uh, you know, you went to them, you asked a question, and if they gave you an answer, that was it. You accepted the answer, whether you liked it or not. Whereas nowadays, I think people who run businesses need to be, as again, as I said, far more adaptable. They need to look at all different avenues, uh, weigh things up, and uh, adjust Accordingly, they'll see other businesses in other sectors implementing certain ideas and that, that might be useful. Part of that idea you could implement in your own business. I think you need to be um, very um, susceptible, very uh, acceptable of other ideas um, and not uh, too blinkered because at the moment it seems as though you know a, a wide variety of sectors of businesses are implementing ideas uh, and certain strategies to cope 
and to encourage their business and to keep people safe. And I think you need to look at all of these things and take on anything which might suit your business, even if the idea wasn't developed for your business. Uh, Take it on if it works. And thinking of what advice um, you would also give to younger generations of people who may be looking to step into a leadership role at an established firm for the first time or maybe make it in business for themselves, what sort of advice would you actually give them to really sort of get them on the road to success in an environment like this? Uh, If you ignore the COVID situation, be honest, straightforward and, uh, should we say, um, don't suffer fools gladly. I found over the years it's easy to um, be polite but not actually tell people the truth because it suits you not to. It's far, far better just tell people, give them a straight, honest answer to a question because people looking to come into business, people looking, youngsters looking to set up in business, they want to know. People these days, youngsters these days seem to be far keener to learn than people did some years ago. So if they want to learn and they're taught the right way, then you've set them off with a good foundation. I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed for anybody tuning into this, looking to make it in their business for sure, especially in such a challenging um, environment. And now, having reflected on that, it only serves that we talk about the future as well, Vincent, just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today. Um, we know that over the course of the next 12 months, we're going to have to continue to adjust to this new normal, as they call it, this way of living and working until there is hopefully a vaccine or a cure for this virus. But over that period, Period of time, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve business-wise, and where do you see Antiques on High being in 12 months' time? Uh, well, just before, I mean, literally two or three days before the um, the lockdown. Uh, in fact, I think it was two days after we shut both shops on the 17th of March. We were due to have a meeting um, in respect of opening our third store. Uh, that meeting was naturally delayed. Uh, until the lockdown was released. Uh, And we are now looking again at opening our third store. Obviously, there are considerations to take into account. Um, Business generally seems to have stabilised. It's not what it was by any stretch of the imagination, but it has has very much stabilised in both our stores. Uh, And in 12 months, I'd like to think that we were that the country as a whole and probably the world was relatively virus-free. We had a vaccine that um, worked um, and we could be aiming at being sort of back to pre-COVID situations because um, I don't, I I ultimately think a vaccine is going to be the only way out of this. I don't, you know, I think we could very easily stagger from one dramatic lockdown in one town to another and this could carry on for some time. Uh, but people need to sort of take a, ad, take note of the advice that the government are giving uh, because we've seen a drastic increase in the infection rate, which might not bother some people, but it never bothers them till they catch it or they know someone that's got it who's on a ventilator. And then all of a sudden, their attitude changes. Um, so in 12 months' time, I'd like to think we were, relatively speaking, out of this by way of having a vaccine. And, you know, the whole country was now looking forward to building itself back up again. Uh, We, I'm confident, will have our third store open by the end of this year at the latest. 
um, and be moving on to possibly another store by mid next year. I certainly wish you all the best in having those plans come to uh, fruition, Vincent, for sure. And thinking about those plans as well, I actually think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in the next few months and have you back on the show with us just to see how things are coming along in that respect and also discuss just where we're at at that point in time as well because I'm sure that many things will have changed between now and then. Absolutely, Scott. Yes, I'd love to come back on again. Um, It will be interesting to see how things have changed. Um, we will naturally be, you know, following the necessary guidelines mm. and making sure that we we keep things as safe as they can be. Um, and let's uh, let's see where we go from here. It would be a real pleasure to welcome you back on again. It's been wonderful uh, having you come onto the programme and hearing your views today. And then most importantly as well, until we do touch base again, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on as well. And let's just keep our fingers crossed. Thank you, Scott, and yourself. Thank you very much. I was speaking on today's programme to Vincent Page from Antiques on High. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, holding a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett. And that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all of those who can. Uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And 
in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain, and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert, mm -hmm. but actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. 
Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would, people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well in scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, uh, a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of 
private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you.
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.